Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is New Books in Science. I'm Maya Wollner, your podcast host today. This afternoon, I have the real pleasure of speaking with Dr. Hervé Guimant about his recent book, Schizophrenics in the 20th Century, The Side Effects of History, published in French by Alma in 2018. In 2006, Dr. Guimant published a comparative history of therapeutic and religious practices. In 2010, he published a book called The Coué Method, which is a fascinating exploration of an early form of self-help. In 2013, with Stéphane Tisson, he co-authored From the Front to the Asylum, 1914 through 1918, which was also published by Alma. Hello, Dr. Guimant. It's great to have you on New Books in Science. Thank you for having me. So let me start by asking you, what inspired you to write this book? I know for a few years, my work is about uh, to write a social history of medicine, psychologies, and uh, psychiatry, and more particularly, my aim is to reveal the birth and the disappearance of uh, practices, diseases, and institutions in relationship with uh, this field, medicine and uh, psychiatry. And in this book, uh, my goal is to analyze uh, why and how schizophrenia emerged. But I wanted to write differently from what we see uh, usually, I mean. And in my opinion, uh, schizophrenia isn't only a scientific concept. It's rather a social fact. And uh, a social fact which has to be depicted not only from the point of view of the scientists, but uh, in priority from the point of view of patients. So um, the inspiration, I think, uh, came, came from um, first uh, a deeper look uh, at the archives. Uh, secondly, a, a contemporary question that Jurch. Uh, uh, the historian to stir up the past, um, and thirdly, uh, the special point of view of the writer, of course, and uh, in my case, uh, the desire to write history of madness uh, from below, and I assume uh, my bias uh, position. Uh, first, firstly, about the archives. Uh, my former book, uh, as you said, was about the soldiers admitted uh, in the asylum during the World War One, and uh, I was reading the patient files, um, and I observed uh, some of them being uh, relabeled uh, with the new diagnosis of uh, schizophrenia, and uh, in a sense, I saw the birth of a new mental illness uh, in the archives, uh, the archives of the 20s and the 30s. And at the same time, uh, in our time, I mean, uh, I was hearing the voices of people 
wanted to abolish the notion of uh, schizophrenia. Uh, researchers were more and more skeptical about uh, this concept, schizophrenia. Social actors also were very critics against stigmatization of schizophrenic. And also patients who claim that uh, hearing voices is uh, normal. So um, it was uh, quite uh, weird for me. I witnessed the agony of the mental illness. I was observing the birth in the archives and uh, uh, an illness baptized at the beginning of the 20th century and contested to death at the beginning of our century, it was, uh, to me, a perfect object of study for an historian, of course. Thank you so much for that. And I wanted to know, before we get into any further details, if you could explain to our listeners why you looked at three different categories, namely schizophrenia, dementia precox, and hebephrenia. Yeah, um, you know, I, I was um, searching for my patient zero, in a sense, the patient zero of schizophrenia, and I looked uh, for three uh, diagnoses that uh, depicted all of them a form of uh, juvenile psychosis. Uh, from the point of view of the patient file, these terms are totally, completely interchangeable. Uh, on the contrary to history of medical classification, which, which uh, distinguishes uh, very clearly the three terms. So three terms. First, uh, dementia precox. It was a, a term from the German science, from the Emil Kreplin's work in the uh, 1890s. And uh, it uh, depicted an early psychosis, a uh, kind of uh, never-ending deterioration of a young person. Uh, schizophrenia was uh, a term created by Eugen Bleuler a few years uh, later to describe the same symptoms, but more um, emphasizing the split personality of the schizophrenic. And thirdly, ebephrenia is uh, the same thing, but that concerns uh, more precisely the youngest, you know, the adolescent. And um, I'm going to, to use the three terms uh, without distinction. That makes a lot of sense, since it seems like practitioners were also using them in that kind of, of way to describe similar symptoms. So today, schizophrenia has entered our popular culture. We most frequently think of it as a chronic mental illness that primarily affects young men. But I was wondering if you could explain to us how and why did this medical terminology enter into French medical discourse at the beginning of the 20th century? And also, who were the individuals who were initially diagnosed with it? Um, it's a big, big question. And... Uh... I want uh, perhaps to, to divide it into two parts. Um, firstly, how the diagnosis entered uh, the French classification. Uh, I could say it wasn't easy to integrate in France and it took a lot of time. And France uh, uh, 
has always been a special country for a lot of things, as you know, but especially in the history of classification, there was a strong, a very strong clinical tradition in France. There is uh, a strong clinical tradition in France. And when dementia precocs spread all over the world, there was um, a lot of debates uh, in France and a lot of uh, resistance against uh, the German term, uh, not only for nationalistic reasons, more certainly for ideological or medical reasons. And uh, in medical congress at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, some French psychiatrists argued against uh, the borrowing of uh, a very tragic denomination, dementia precox. Uh, could they cure a young person uh, that would be labeled uh, uh, with uh, this terrible term, dementia precox? So um, the controversy revealed a kind of politics of classification. And to classify, in my opinion, it's a political act. Um, Concerning the second part of your question about uh, the individuals who were initially diagnosed like that as uh, schizophrenic in the 20s or in the 30s, I think they didn't have a lot of symptoms in common. But the most interesting in my point of view is that they shared the same social condition. They could be considered as uh, the losers of the modern era. Uh, They are those who couldn't respond to the expectation of uh, school massification, military service, or not to mention expectation coming from their families. So in other words, uh, there were those who escaped the selectionist model Born at the end of the 19th century, they weren't uh, considered as idiots. Uh, They were, on the contrary, in a social uh, uprising. But in the 20s, in the 30s, because uh, precisely of the social crisis, because of wars, they failed totally. And... uh, To explain this, uh, I would like to quote uh, uh, Philippe Kadic, one of my favorite authors, and in uh, his uh, exegesis, uh, he he gave a short definition for schizophrenic. Uh, That is for me a a good one. Let me quote uh, the sentence. The schizophrenic is a leap forward that failed. And... My archives, uh, dating from the 20s and the 30s, prove that. Thank you so much. I wanted to know if you could go a little bit deeper into this group of people, and in particular, talk a little bit about the women who were uh, diagnosed with dementia precox uh, in this period. And then maybe you could also talk about um, uh, sexual orientation afterwards. Yeah, you know, it was a a big surprise for me. Uh, I noticed that uh, among those who were marginalized by society and psychiatry uh, as schizophrenics, uh, three-fourths were women. And I was surprised because in my mind, 
and probably yours also, I imagined uh, schizophrenia being universal construct. Uh, but it, it wasn't. Uh, and in my corpus, uh, in my archives, I, I found a lot of women who had lived in harsh social conditions, hoping for uh, emancipation. They were maids, for instance, uh, moving towards uh, a better place, uh, towards uh, big towns. And uh, um, for, for instance, I, I can quote a, a letter, a letter I want to share with you. Uh, it's from a, a woman I renamed Sophie. And she explained, uh, I don't want to clean up the dust of men anymore. I want to be a heroine. And why not to become a typist? And typist was her hopeful condition in the 20s. So um, emancipation was uh, the big term for, uh, for her. Um, emancipation wasn't the only thing. They also, uh, in my opinion, they also betrayed their gender. Uh, they were frequently identified by their boyish features. And um, about these women, uh, I would like to, to, to cite also uh, the first psychiatrist who depicted uh, the juvenile psychosis, uh, the dementia precox in France. Uh, his name is Jules Christian. He wrote about dementia precox, that it was, I quote, the steep price to pay for the desire of women's emancipation. And I think that in this case, medical science is mm, the other name for social prejudice. That's really powerful. Thank you so much. Um, I wanted to know if you could talk a little bit about the debate between those who supported Emile Kraepelin and those French psychiatrists who did not. Um, as I said uh, just a few minutes ago, there was a big controversy at the beginning of the 20th century, and especially between French and German psychiatrists, but also uh, a controversy between French psychiatrists themselves, controversy around the existence of a specific juvenile psychosis, uh, controversy around the number of people uh, with the diagnosis of uh, juvenile psychosis, uh, around also the origins of the disease and around uh, the way of curing. So uh, within French psychiatry, the opposition was very drastic. Uh, a few psychiatrists declared the, that uh, dementia precox was massive, dangerous, not incurable, and uh, it was a kind of a tragic uh, condition. On the other hand, uh, others, psychiatrists, contested this representation and defined a small, curable, and non-specific uh, illness. So, in a way, this controversy was about the confrontation between a pessimistic and an optimistic manner to depict uh, madness. And uh, nowadays, you know, a lot of people want to rehabilitate the schizophrenic. Uh, and it would be, I think, in their interest to return to the beginning of the story, to see in which 
social context uh, it was born. What was the most interesting fact that you discovered by conducting a demographic or spatial study of the schizophrenia diagnosis in France, while also considering it within the context of uh, the crisis of migration in the 1930s? Uh, Schizophrenia is nowadays uh, frequently thought as a universal uh, kind of uh, eternal thing. Uh, that is quite depressing for an historian. And uh, fortunately, I was surprised to discover a map dating from 1948, a map created by Paul Sivadon. It was a, it was a, um, a psychiatrist uh, working for a World Health Organization. And uh, this map was about the representation, the spatial distribution of different forms of madness in France. It was made up with uh, statistics and uh, given by, you know, psychiatric wards and uh, psychiatrists. And there was a map about schizophrenia. And uh, it appears clearly that schizophrenia, uh, just after the Second World War, was a sovereign illness. And you know what, what is very interesting about this, uh, about uh, the Sivadon's hypothesis, hypothesis. Uh, it was that madness uh, was in the air, especially caused by the strength of the winds. And uh, in France, we, we name the winds, <laughs> the Mistral, la Tramontane, etc. And uh, curiously, Uh, according to some psychiatrists, um, schizophrenics should be protected from these strong winds. Uh, of course, the historian that I am uh, thinks uh, differently. And to discover the real origin of madness in the south of France, I went into the archives of a southern town, Montpellier, to understand Uh, from where uh, this over-representation came from. And uh, what I discovered was completely different. The people who were diagnosed with dementia precox, with schizophrenia, weren't born in the territory close to Montpellier Asylum. They were from Corsica. And um, until 1974, there wasn't any psychiatric ward in Corsica. So when a person turned mad, he or she uh, was placed in a temporary jail, then transferred by boat, and they were shipped off uh, to, to France. And you can probably imagine the result of that process. A few days in a boat, you don't speak a word of French, Uh, of course, you, you're going to be labeled as uh, completely crazy and lost for science and medicine. And the name to depict that was dementia precox or schizophrenia. Um, they, they just had to endure harsh conditions. In a sense, schizophrenia wasn't the products of nature, wasn't the products of winds, but the product of administration. And uh, uh, along um, the same lines, I discovered 
in one of the psychiatric institutions I worked on, uh, more than half of schizophrenic in the 30s were immigrants. And uh, we, we have to remember the French situation just after World War I. Uh, there was a high demand for labor. Lots of men, lots of women came from other countries in the 20s, especially from Eastern Europe and Central Europe. And uh, they were called over to, to work. And I was surprised to observe uh, another representation of these uh, new immigrants in my corpus of schizophrenic. Um, nowadays, psychiatrists are used to establishing a relationship between schizophrenia and migration. But in my opinion, relationship that could be established between the two things is more social. And for sure, their um, migrants' hope was crushed uh, during the 30s. There was no work anymore for these new immigrants. They were under pressure also of uh, xenophobic discourse, and especially from French doctors in the 30s. And finally, they, they were prioritized to be transferred to new institutions of relegation. And uh, in my opinion, uh, they were victims of history. This discovery seems really relevant, actually, to those practicing uh, psychiatry today. And it also connects back to what you were saying previously about the leap forward that failed, that connects those populations together. So in Chapter 5, you spend some time discussing how families described their ill family members. Um, What kind of new information did these family narratives reveal to you as a historian? Actually... It is important, in my opinion, to reintroduce in the narrative the discourse of the patient, but also the discourse of families on madness. And it's possible, thanks to the questionnaires, uh, which were filled out by families when their patients were admitted to the hospital. Of course, families answered the close question of doctors, but uh, there wasn't uh, enough space for them, for their words, for their stories. So a kind of uh, flood of words were coming from these questionnaires in the margins, especially in free letters. If we compare uh, the two narratives, from the families and from the doctors, they didn't really match up. Um, Take, for instance, the manner they depicted the beginning of madness. In the family discourse, uh, there was always an inaugural moment that is going, that is a give birth to to madness, you know, a a day, a night, uh, frequently in relationship with uh, history, uh, history with a big, big H wars, for instance. On the contrary, in the psychiatric discourse, uh, the roots of evil uh, are to be found in the past, in the childhood of the patient or even before the birth of the patient. The degeneration is the big cause of madness for, for the doctors. No, probably no one's wrong, no one's right, but uh, each actor... Uh, in the story, uh, build a narrative about illness 
and uh, I think the historian must take them all into account. I found your discussion of adolescence and puberty especially rich. How did this transitional phase from childhood to young adulthood become, quote, one of the most dangerous moments in one's life from the standpoint of schizophrenia? Yeah, um, it's, it's the meeting point of all the discourses. Schizophrenic uh, are considered as imperfect pubescent. Uh, everybody agrees with uh, this idea. Psychiatrists are searching for the trace of the disease in the blood of their patients. Uh, families are asserting that the problem is in the blood. And patients also are searching for a few means to correct their impure blood. So the main thing to understand, I think, is that dementia precox was built to depict how young people couldn't deal with their puberty. That was thought as a biological chaos, uh, an event that uh, provoked a risk, uh, the biggest risk in, in life. And um, psychiatry, in my opinion, contributed uh, in constructing uh, the adolescence phase as the riskiest moment in life. Uh, the problem was that everybody could be vulnerable. There was no clear boundaries between a normal pubescent and a non-normal one. And uh, logically, uh, scholars began to depict the fine line between a normal adolescence and a schizophrenic uh, one. Uh, for instance, if a young person loved without uh, reasons, uh, it could be, he could be diagnosed as a schizophrenic. And uh, there, there was a, a spectrum of behaviors that uh, overlap uh, to describe uh, both adolescence and schizophrenia. Well, it was what a scholar named in the 40s, the juvenile original crisis. And uh, in my opinion, schizophrenia contributed to the medicalization of the youth and to a more negative image of adolescence. Did the rise of evidence-based medicine, as appropriated by French psychiatrists, influence the ways in which the patient experienced their diagnosis? And if yes, how? And I want to know also a little bit about the ways in which doctors treated and measured and analyzed the schizophrenic body. Um, schizophrenia was the result of uh, the psychiatrist's desire to build a real medical science at the end of the 19th century. And before this period... Uh, they were frequently considered as, uh, you know, uh, philosophers, uh, not really as scientists. Uh, and uh, during the 19th century, the aim was to distinguish uh, mental illnesses as separated entities and to find also specific signs independent from the words of the patients uh, because the patient could lie and they have to go beyond the words of the patients. Uh, so uh, the patient became an object of science, uh, and a scientific object. The young psychiatrists were 
taught to identify the schizophrenic at first look uh, without uh, listening, uh, for instance, to their delusions. Even if uh, evidence-based medicine uh, didn't exist as a term at this time, uh, probably the same way of thinking already existed. And uh, that affects, of course, uh, the patient life. So you write in Chapter 8 about the relationship between the idea of degeneration, melancholy, and the dementia praecox diagnosis. And I wanted to know if you could explain their relationship further for our listeners. Between melancholia and uh, schizophrenia. Um, when, when I was um, immersed in the archives, uh, I was interested in the transition between hysteria, melancholia, and schizophrenia. In the case of uh, patients who were admitted in asylum for decades, uh, I observed frequently this uh, lexical transition. And two things are interesting in my opinion. First, uh, rather than considering schizophrenia as an absolute beginning in history, uh, I think uh, it's possible to consider schizophrenia as the last stage uh, in the long history of melancholia, which dating, uh, as you know, uh, from uh, ancient uh, history. Secondly, I think that um, we could think how being relabeled as this affects the patient identity and the patient image image uh, in society and uh, family. And I, I, I want this work on labels and uh, uh, their long uh, historical chain to be uh, a contribution to the thoughts about the social construction of madness and without a doubt to a more skeptical use of this, uh, these labels. How did opposition or resistance become one of the defining signs of schizophrenia? And what do you think that this tells us about its use as a diagnostic category? One of the terms uh, that uh, appeared to define schizophrenia in my archives, um, in the patient files, uh, was uh, resistance. And uh, schizophrenic patients were considered as negative people with uh, nihilistic behaviors. And um, according to me, two reasons uh, could explain why they were so resistant. First, uh, as we saw just uh, before, schizophrenic were a group of uh, individuals that remains not understood. Society doesn't know what to do with them. Uh, like uh, the demonic position in the 17th century or hysteric people in the 19th century. They are what a society couldn't understand or couldn't uh, integrate, uh, if you want. Uh, Secondly, they were resistant because of the manner the psychiatric uh, institution treated them. Uh, From the point of view of scientists, History of treatments means history of progress. But from the point of view of schizophrenic patients, uh, it's not the same history. 
because they were considered as non-curable. They had to go through all of treatments as possible, and they were always physically aggressive for the body, as they were uh, considered as uh, guinea pigs. As uh, experimental objects, uh, they reinforced themselves as rebels. Rebellion against society, rebellion against family, rebellion against uh, doctors, treatments, and institutions. And uh, this resistance achieved to define schizophrenia, a resistant disease. Uh, That's for this reason, in my opinion, that lobotomy was used in priority on schizophrenic patients in the 40s and in the 50s, and especially on women, because psychosurgical practice put an end to the resistance. It was uh, the last resort to reduce the number of non-curable mad people. Thank you. That seems like a very insightful analysis of the use of lobotomy during that period. I wanted to know, why were individuals diagnosed with schizophrenia and uh, dementia precox transferred in such significantly large numbers from Paris to private institutions like Saint-Rémy? Yeah, the um, the story of Saint-Rémy is emblematic of how uh, schizophrenic people were treated in the first half of the 20th century, and it was a surprise uh, to, to me. Uh, let me explain the story. Uh, I, I was looking at the people diagnosed uh, schizof- with schizophrenia in the Maison Blanche Asylum, uh, it was a big institution for women in Paris. And uh, a detail caught my attention. Uh, a lot of uh, these patients were transferred at the end of the 30s towards psychiatric institutions. I didn't even know uh, of their uh, existence. That piqued my interest. Of course, uh the transfer of patients uh, existed in the 19th century, but here what was unbelievable uh, was uh, they, they were transferred massively, quickly, and in new institutions, conceived especially for them. And uh, I wanted to initiate an investigation about uh, these uh, transfers and uh, these, these, the institution of uh, Saint-Rémy. So uh, I, put, uh, I put on my detective hat. I drove east towards an isolated low mountains where thousands of people were sent away in 1937. And what I discovered was incredible. Parisian authorities decided in the 30s to put a new system in place to deal with mad people who were more and more numerous in the Parisian asylum. They had a deal with a capitalist named Justin Perchaud, who organized very quickly an asylum at Saint-Rémy. The nurses were Spanish from the Civil War. The director was a World War I veteran. Uh, it was a cheap institution built to make uh, money off of madness. Um, the French press attacked him on that point. But 
and people were transferred in groups of 50 by train, by bus, uh, in an unadapted uh, institution. And finally, I came up with this conclusion. Paris, the capital, get rid of, uh, got rid of the mad from the town. And uh, chronic patients, especially schizophrenic, schizophrenic uh, women and immigrants were mistreated, isolated, and led to death just before World War II. Thank you so much for that. I want to finish our interview by asking you, what was the most surprising or unlikely thing that you discovered while conducting your research for this book? Um, This book was based on surprises. Every single chapter opens up with a surprise, and my method, uh, my method could be summarized as this: uh, dive deep in the archives and let the surprise come to me. Uh, that's not common in the academic field, I think, but in my opinion, that produces, you know, a lot of uh, results. And among uh, these uh, surprises. Uh, that filled uh, all the book. Uh, I can talk about uh, the last chapter, if you want, uh, the last chapter, which leads us to our present state. Um, In the patient files, dating from the 60s and the 70s, I discovered uh, little calendars that were marked every three weeks. They were the traces of the beginning of our way to deal with chronic patients with the help of uh, medication and especially long-lasting injection. And actually, um, the 50s, in the 50s, there, were, there was a new big problem, you know, born from a hope to cure madness in the community with uh, medication. And in the 60s, actually, Uh, schizophrenic patients were released massively with the help of a new generation of drugs. But at the same time, chronic patients recovered a newly funded freedom. In the hospital, they hid their pills, uh, they threw their medication on the ground, but uh, outside, they were free to manage with it. They became drug evaders. Don't forget that uh, frequently they couldn't tolerate uh, the side effects of the medication. That was the problem. How to allow the patient to live, but also to be assured that uh, they would take the medication. So the discovery in the archives was about the birth of the new system of cure. The long-lasting injection created in the 60s kept the patient uh, tied to the hospital. The chemical restraints attached uh, the patient to to a leech. It's a strong term, but I think it's a fact. Uh, This practice is considered as normal in our time, but in the 70s, it provoked a lot of uh, debates about, uh, uh, you know, uh, medical uh, restraints. So the patients were stuck between autonomy and restraint. So it highlights uh, the existence of a kind of uh, schizophrenic uh, institution, and ironically, it could be another side effect of uh, history. 
That seems like a great place to end, Dr. Gimal. Thanks for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you for your time. It was uh, my pleasure. And we're all hoping that your book gets translated into English very soon. And for those of you who can read French, the original title is Schizophrène au XXe siècle, des effets secondaires de l'histoire. This has been New Books in Science, and I'm Maya Wollner. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>